Chapter Seven of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Six, Part One. Joan of Naples by Alexander Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven. The King of Hungary, his black flag ever borne before him, started for Naples, refusing all offered honors and rejecting the canopy beneath which he was to make his entry not even stopping to give audience to the chief citizens or to receive the acclamations of the crowd. Armed at all points, he made for Castel Nuovo, leaving behind him dismay and fear. His first act on entering the city was to order Donna Cancha to be burnt, her punishment having been deferred by reason of her pregnancy. Like the others, she was drawn on a cart to the square of St. Eligius, there consigned to the flames. The young creature whose suffering had not impaired her beauty was dressed as for a festival, and laughing like a mad thing up to the last moment, mocked at her executioners and threw kisses to the crowd. A few days later, Godfrey of Marsana, Count of Squalace, and Grand Admiral of the Kingdom, was arrested by the king's orders. His life was promised him on condition of delivering up Conrad of Catanzaro, one of his relatives accused of conspiring against André. The Grand Admiral committed this act of shameless treachery, and did not shrink from sending his own son to persuade Conrad to come to the town. The poor wretch was given over to the king and tortured alive on a wheel made with sharp knives. The sight of these barbarities, far from calming the king's rage, seemed to inflame it the more. Every day there were new accusations and new sentences. The prisons were crowded. Louis's punishments were redoubled in severity. A fear arose that the town, and indeed the whole kingdom, were to be treated as having taken part in André's death. Murmurs arose against this barbarous rule, and all men's thoughts turned toward their fugitive queen. The Neapolitan barons had taken the oath of fidelity with no willing hearts, and when it came to the turn of the counts of San Severino, they feared a trick of some kind and refused to appear altogether before the Hungarian, but took refuge in the town of Salerno and sent Archbishop Roger, their brother, to make sure of the king's intentions beforehand. Louis received him magnificently and appointed him privy councillor and grand protonotary. Then, and not till then, did Robert of San Severino and Roger, Count of Chiaramonte, venture into the king's presence. After doing homage, they retired to their homes. The other barons followed their example of caution, and hiding their discontent under a show of respect, awaited a favorable moment for shaking off the foreign yoke. But the queen had encountered no obstacle in her flight, and arrived at Nice five days later. Her passage through Provence was like a triumph. Her beauty, youth, and misfortunes, even certain mysterious reports as to her adventures, all contributed to arouse the interest of the Provencal people. Games and fetes were improvised to soften the hardship of exile for the proscribed princess. But amid the outbursts of joy from every town, castle, and city, Joan, always sad, lived ever in her silent grief and glowing memories. At the gates of Aix, she found the clergy, the nobility, and the chief magistrates who received her respectfully but with no signs of enthusiasm. As the queen advanced, her astonishment increased, as she saw the coldness of the people, and the solemn, constrained air of the great men who escorted her. Many anxious thoughts alarmed her, and she even went so far as to fear some intrigue of the king of Hungary. Scarcely had her cortege arrived at Castle Arnaud, when the nobles, dividing into two ranks, let the queen pass with her counsellor Spinelli and two women. Then, closing up, they cut her off from the rest of her suite. After this, each in turn took up his station as guardian of the fortress. There was no room for doubt. The queen was a prisoner, but the cause of the maneuver it was impossible to guess. She asked the high dignitaries, and they, protesting respectful devotion, refused to explain till they had news from Avignon. 
Meanwhile, all honors that a queen could receive were lavished on Joan, but she was kept in sight and forbidden to go out. This new trouble increased her depression. She did not know what had happened to Louis of Tarentum, and her imagination, always apt at creating disasters, instantly suggested that she would soon be weeping for his loss. But Louis, always with his faithful Acciajuoli, had after many fatiguing adventures been shipwrecked at the port of Pisa, thence he had taken route for Florence to beg men and money, but the Florentines decided to keep an absolute neutrality and refused to receive him. The prince, losing his last hope, was pondering gloomy plans when Nicholas Acciajuoli thus resolutely addressed him. "'My lord, it is not given to mankind to enjoy prosperity for ever. There are misfortunes beyond all human foresight. You were once rich and powerful, and you are now a fugitive in disguise, begging the help of others. You must reserve your strength for better days. I still have a considerable fortune.' and also have relations and friends whose wealth is at my disposal. Let us try to make our way to the queen, and at once decide what we can do. I myself shall always defend you and obey you as my lord and master. The prince received these generous offers with the utmost gratitude, and told his counsellor that he placed his person in his hands, and all that remained of his future. Acciajuoli, not content with serving his master as a devoted servant, persuaded his brother Angelo, Archbishop of Florence, who was in great favor of Clement VI's court, to join with them in persuading the Pope to interest himself in the cause of Louis of Tarentum. So, without further delay, the prince, his counselor, and the good prelate made their way to the port of Marseilles, but learning that the queen was a prisoner at Aix, they embarked at Acmort, then went straight to Avignon. It soon appeared that the Pope had a real affection and esteem for the character of the Archbishop of Florence, for Louis was received with paternal kindness at the court of Avignon, which was far more than he had expected. When he kneeled before the sovereign pontiff, his holiness bent affectionately towards him and helped him to rise, saluting him by the title of king. Two days later, another prelate, the Archbishop of Aix, came into the Queen's presence. "'Most gracious and dearly beloved sovereign,' Permit the most humble and devoted of your servants to ask pardon, in the name of your subjects for the painful but necessary measure they have thought fit to take concerning your majesty. When you arrived on our coast, your loyal town of Aix had learned from a trustworthy source that the King of France was proposing to give our country to one of his own sons, making good this loss to you by the cessation of another domain. Also, that the Duke of Normandy had come to Avignon to request this exchange in person. We were quite decided, madame, and had made a vow to God that we would give up everything rather than suffer the hateful tyranny of the French. But before spilling blood we thought it best to secure your august person as a sacred hostage, a sacred ark, which no man dared touch but was smitten to the ground, which indeed must keep away from our walls the scourge of war. We have now read the former annulment of this hateful plan in a brief sent by the sovereign pontiff from Avignon, and in this brief he himself guarantees your good faith. We give you your full and entire liberty, and henceforth we shall only endeavor to keep you among us by prayers and protestations. Go then, madame, if that is your pleasure, but before you leave these lands, which will be plunged into mourning by your withdrawal, leave us with some hope that you forgive the apparent violence to which we have subjected you, only in fear that we might lose you, and remember that on the day when you cease to be our queen, you signed the death warrant of all your subjects. Joan reassured the archbishop and the deputation from her good town of Aix, with a melancholy smile, 
and promised that she would always cherish the memory of their affection. From this time she could not be deceived as to the real sentiments of the nobles and people, and a fidelity so uncommon, revealed with sincere tears, touched her heart and made her reflect bitterly upon her past. But a league's distance from Avignon a magnificent triumphal reception awaited her. Louis of Tarentum and all the cardinals present at the court had come out to meet her. Pages in dazzling dress carried above Joan's head a canopy of scarlet velvet, ornamented with fleur-de-lis in gold and plumes. Handsome youths and lovely girls, their heads crowned with flowers, went before her singing her praise. The streets were bordered with a living hedge of people. The houses were decked out, the bells rang a triple peal, as at the great church festivals. Clement VI first received the queen at the castle of Avignon with all the pomp he knew so well how to employ on solemn occasions. Then she was lodged in the palace of Cardinal Napoleon of Orsini, who, on his return from the conclave at Perugia, had built this regal dwelling at Villeneuve, inhabited later by the popes. No words could give an idea of the strangely disturbed condition of Avignon at this period. Since Clement V had transported the seat of the papacy to Provence, there had sprung up, in this arrival to Rome, squares, churches, cardinals' palaces, of unparalleled splendor. All the business of nations and kings was transacted at the castle of Avignon. Ambassadors from every court, merchants of every nation, adventurers of all kinds, Italians, Spaniards, Hungarians, Arabs, Jews, soldiers, Bohemians, jesters, poets, monks, courtesans, swarmed and clustered here and hustled one another in the streets. There was confusion of tongues, customs, and costumes, an inextricable mixture of splendor and rags, riches and misery, debasement and grandeur. The austere poets of the Middle Ages stigmatized the accursed city in their writings under the name of the New Babylon. There is one curious monument of Joan's sojourn at Avignon and the exercise of her authority as sovereign. She was indignant at the effrontery of the women of the town, who elbowed everybody shamelessly in the streets, and published a notable edict, the first of its kind, which has since served as a model in like cases, to compel all unfortunate women who trafficked in their honor to live shut up together in a house that was bound to be open every day in the year except the last three days of Holy Week, the entrance to be barred to Jews at all times. An abbess, chosen once a year, had the supreme control over this strange convent. Rules were established for the maintenance of order and severe penalties inflicted for any infringement of discipline. The lawyers of the period gained a great reputation by this salutary institution. The fair ladies of Avignon were eager in their defense of the queen in spite of the calumnious reports that strove to tarnish her reputation. With one voice, the wisdom of André's widow was extolled. The concert of praises was disturbed, however, by murmurs from the recluses themselves, who in their own brutal language declared that Joan of Naples was impeding their commerce so as to get a monopoly for herself. Meanwhile, Marie of Durazzo had joined her sister. After her husband's death, she had found means to take refuge in the convent of Santa Croce with her two little daughters, and while Louis of Hungary was busy burning his victims, the unhappy Marie had contrived to make her escape in the frock of an old monk, and as by a miracle to get on board a ship that was setting sail for Provence. She related to her sister the frightful details of the king's cruelty, and soon a new proof of his implacable hatred confirmed the tales of the poor princess. Louis's ambassadors appeared at the court of Avignon to demand, formally, the queen's condemnation. It was a great day when Joan of Naples pleaded her own cause before the pope, in the presence of all the cardinals then at Avignon, all the ambassadors of foreign powers, and all the eminent persons come from every quarter of Europe to be present at this trial, unique in the annals of history. 
we must imagine a vast enclosure in whose midst upon a raised throne as president of the august tribunal sat god's vicar on earth absolute and supreme judge emblem of temporal and spiritual power of authority human and divine to the right and left of the sovereign pontiff the cardinals in their red robes sat in chairs set round in a circle and behind these princes of the sacred college stretch rows of bishops extending to the end of the hall with vicars canons deacons archdeacons and the whole immense hierarchy of the church facing the pontifical throne was a platform reserved for the queen of naples and her suite at the pope's feet stood the ambassadors from the king of hungary who played the part of accusers without speaking a word the circumstances of the crime and all the proofs having been discussed beforehand by a committee appointed for the purpose the rest of the hall was filled by a brilliant crowd of high dignitaries illustrious captains and noble envoys all vying with one another in proud display everyone ceased to breathe all eyes were fixed on the dais where joan was to speak her own defence a movement of uneasy curiosity made this compact mass of humanity surge towards the centre the cardinals above raised like proud peacocks over a golden harvest field shaken in the breeze the queen appeared hand in hand with her uncle the old cardinal of perigord and her aunt the countess agnes her gait was so modest and proud her countenance so melancholy and pure her look so open and confident that even before she spoke every heart was hers joan was now twenty years of age her magnificent beauty was fully developed but an extreme pallor concealed the brilliance of her transparent satin skin and her hollow cheek told the tale of expiation and suffering among the spectators who looked on most eagerly there was a certain young man with strongly marked features glowing eyes and brown hair whom we shall meet again later on in our narrative but we will not divert our readers attention but only tell them that his name was james of aragon that he was prince of majorca and would have been ready to shed every drop of his blood only to check one single tear that hung on joan's eyelids the queen spoke in an agitated trembling voice stopping from time to time to dry her moist and shining eyes or to breathe one of those deep sighs that go straight to the heart she told the tale of her husband's death painfully and vividly painted truthfully the mad terror that had seized upon her and struck her down at that frightful time raised her hands to her brow with the gesture of despair as though she would wrest the madness from her brain and a shudder of pity and awe passed through the assembled crowd it is a fact that at this moment if her words were false her anguish was both sincere and terrible an angel soiled by crime she lied like satan himself but like him too she suffered all the agony of remorse and pride thus when at the end of her speech she burst into tears and implored help and protection against the usurper of her kingdom a cry of general assent drowned her closing words several hands flew to their sword-hilts and the hungarian ambassadors retired covered with shame and confusion that same evening the sentence to the great joy of all was proclaimed that joan was innocent and acquitted of all concern in the assassination of her husband but as her conduct after the event and the indifference she had shown about pursuing the authors of the crime admitted no valid excuse the pope declared that there were plain traces of magic and that the wrongdoing attributed to joan was the result of some baneful charm cast upon her which she could by no possible means resist at the same time his holiness confirmed her marriage with the louis of tarentum and bestowed on him the order of the rose of gold and the title of king of sicily and jerusalem joan it is true had on the eve of her acquittal sold the town of avignon to the pope for the sum of eighty thousand florins while the queen was pleading her case at the court of clement the sixth a dreadful epidemic called the black plague the same that boccaccio has described so wonderfully was ravaging the kingdom of naples 
and indeed the whole of Italy. According to the calculation of Matteo Villani, Florence lost three-fifths of her population, Bologna two-thirds, and nearly all Europe was reduced in some frightful proportion. The Neapolitans were already weary of the cruelties and greed of the Hungarians. They were only awaiting some opportunity to revolt against the stranger's oppression and to recall their lawful sovereign, whom, for all her ill deeds, they had never ceased to love. The attraction of youth and beauty was deeply felt by this pleasure-loving people. Scarcely had the pestilence thrown confusion into the army and town when loud cursing arose against the tyrant and his executioners. Louis of Hungary, suddenly threatened by the wrath of heaven and the people's vengeance, was terrified both by the plague and by the riots, and disappeared in the middle of the night. Leaving the government of Naples in the hands of Conrad Lupo, one of his captains, he embarked hastily at Berletta, and left the kingdom in very much the same way as Louis of Tarentum, fleeing from him, had left it a few months before. This news arrived at Avignon just when the Pope was about to send the Queen his bull of absolution. It was at once decided to take away the kingdom from Louis Viceroy. Nicolas Acciajuoli left for Naples with the marvellous bull that was to prove to all men the innocence of the Queen, to banish all scruples and stir up a new enthusiasm. The councillor first went to the castle of Melzi, commanded by his son Lorenzo. This was the only fortress that had always held out. The father and son embraced with the honourable pride that near relatives may justly feel when they meet after they have united in the performance of a heroic duty. From the governor of Melzi, Louis of Tarentum's counsellor learned that all men were wearied of the arrogance and vexatious conduct of the queen's enemies, and that a conspiracy was in train, started in the University of Naples, but with vast ramifications all over the kingdom, and moreover that there was dissension in the enemy's army. The indefatigable councillor went from Apulia to Naples, traversing towns and villages, collecting men everywhere, proclaiming loudly the acquittal of the queen and her marriage with Louis of Tarentum, also that the pope was offering indulgences to such as would receive with joy their lawful sovereigns. Then, seeing that the people shouted as he went by, "'Long live Joan! Death to the Hungarians!' He returned and told his sovereigns in what frame of mind he had left their subjects. Joan borrowed money wherever she could, armed galleys, and left Marseilles with her husband, her sister, and two faithful advisers, Acciajuoli and Spinelli, on the 10th of September, 1348. The king and queen, not being able to enter at the harbor, which was in the enemy's power, disembarked at Santa Maria del Carmine, near the river Sebeto, amid the frenzied applause of an immense crowd, and accompanied by all the Neapolitan nobles. They made their way to the palace of Miserere Ajatorio, near Porta Capuana. The Hungarians, having fortified themselves in all the castles, but Acciajuoli, at the head of the queen's partisans, blockaded the fortresses so ably that half of the enemy were obliged to surrender, and the other half took to flight and were scattered about the interior of the kingdom. We shall now follow Louis of Tarentum in his arduous adventures in Apulia, the Calabrias, and the Abruzzi, where he recovered one by one the fortresses that the Hungarians had taken. By dint of unexampled valor and patience, he at last mastered nearly all of the more considerable places, when suddenly everything changed, and fortune turned her back upon him for the second time. A German captain called Varner, who had deserted the Hungarian army to sell himself to the queen, had again played the traitor and sold himself once more, allowed himself to be surprised at Cornetto by Conrad Lupo, the king of Hungary's vice-general, and openly joined him, taking along with him a great party of the adventurers who fought under his orders. This unexpected defection forced Louis of Tarentum to retire to Naples. The king of Hungary, soon learning that the troops had rallied round his banner, 
and only awaited his return to march upon the capital, disembarked with a strong reinforcement of cavalry at the port of Manfredonia, and taking Trani, Canossa, and Salerno, went forward to lay siege to Aversa. The news fell like a thunderclap on Joan and her husband. The Hungarian army consisted of ten thousand horse, and more than seven thousand infantry, and Aversa had only five hundred soldiers under Giacomo Pignatelli. In spite of the immense disproportion of the numbers, the Neapolitan general vigorously repelled the attack, and the king of Hungary, fighting in the front, was wounded in his foot by an arrow. Then, Louis, seeing that it would be difficult to take the place by storm, determined to starve them out. For three months the besieged performed prodigies of valor, and further assistance was impossible. Their capitulation was expected at any moment, unless, indeed, they decided to perish every man. Renaud de Bau, who was to come from Marseilles with a squadron of ten ships to defend the ports of the capital and secure the queen's flight, should the Hungarian army get possession of Naples, had been delayed by adverse winds and obliged to stop on the way. All things seemed to conspire in favor of the enemy. Louis of Tarentum, whose generous soul refused to shed the blood of his brave men in an unequal and desperate struggle, nobly sacrificed himself and made an offer to the king of Hungary to settle their quarrel in single combat. We append the authentic letters that passed between Joan's husband and André's brother. Illustrious king of Hungary, who has come to invade our kingdom, we, by the grace of God, king of Jerusalem and Sicily, invite you to single combat. We know that you are in no wise disturbed by the death of your lancers or the other pagans in your suite, no more indeed than if they were dogs. But we, fearing harm to our own soldiers and men-at-arms, desire to fight with you personally, to put an end to the present war and restore peace to our kingdom. He who survives shall be king, and therefore, to ensure that this duel shall take place, we definitely propose as a site either Paris, in the presence of the king of France, or one of those towns of Perugia, Avignon, or Naples. Choose one of these four places and send us your reply. The king of Hungary first consulted with his council, and then replied, Great king! We have read and considered your letter sent to us by the bearer of these presents, and by your invitation to a duel we are most supremely pleased. But we do not approve of any of the places you propose, since they are all suspect, and for several reasons. The king of France is your maternal grandfather, and although we are also connected by blood with him, the relationship is not so near. The town of Avignon, although nominally belonging to the sovereign pontiff, is the capital of Provence, and has always been subject to your rule. Neither have we any more confidence in Perugia, for that town is devoted to your cause. As to the city of Naples, there is no need to say that we refuse that rendezvous since it is in revolt against us, and you are their king. But if you wish to fight with us, let it be in the presence of the Emperor of Germany, who is Lord Supreme, or the King of England, who is our common friend, or the Patriarch of Aquileia, a good Catholic. If you do not approve of any of the places we propose, we shall soon be near you with our army, and so remove all difficulties and delays. Then you can come forth, and our duel can take place in the presence of both armies. After the interchange of these two letters, Louis of Tarentum proposed nothing further. The garrison at Aversa had capitulated after a heroic resistance, and it was known only too well that if the King of Hungary could get so far as the walls of Naples, he would not have to endanger his life in order to seize that city. Happily, the Provençal galleys had reached port at last. The king and queen had only just time to embark and take refuge at Gaeta. The Hungarian army arrived at Naples. The town was on the point of yielding, and had sent messengers to the king humbly demanding peace. 
but the speeches of the hungarians showed such insolence that the people irritated past endurance took up arms and resolved to defend their household goods with all the energy of despair end of chapter seven recording by john van stan savannah georgia